Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, as Mike said, in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. Um, Wanted to just begin by um, thinking a little bit about the letter to the Philippians, actually. Um, I've been spending a lot of time in this letter. Um, Paul's letter to the Philippians was written uh, by the apostle uh, from a prison cell in Rome and separated from the disciples he'd made and the churches that he had planted. Uh, Paul's mission, what was normal for him, had really come to, um, to an end. It had halted, it had stopped. And yet, surprisingly, he tells the Philippians that as he's sitting in this prison cell, what has happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel. Some have referred to this letter as the epistle of joy because of how often he speaks of joy or calls others to rejoice. And much of his joy is found in the fact that even though he is bound in chains, as he will later say in his final letter to Timothy, that he knows that the Word of God is not bound. It cannot be stopped. I pray that we too will find joy in this momentary uh, moment of confinement, knowing that God's word is going forth, that his promises are no less certain, and that his plans are not being hindered, that everything is unfolding exactly as he has planned. Now, the Apostle Paul is in jail, and he is preaching, or is in jail for preaching about Jesus. He's imprisoned in many ways for what Mark writes and for what even I will preach this morning about Jesus as the King. There is no better time, I think, to continue to work through this series called Reintroducing Jesus as we explore the Gospel of Mark, which is basically a 16-chapter answer to the question of who is Jesus. Now, unlike the time of Paul, proclaiming truth about Jesus is uh, no less necessary, but it is perhaps a bit less controversial. And that's because a majority of people think Jesus was nothing more than a good moral teacher. Now, if they had understood what he taught, they probably wouldn't think that. In fact, C.S. Lewis so aptly writes that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So ignorant of what Jesus has actually said and taught We have a world full of millions of passionate admirers of Jesus, loving many of his teachings, but not knowing most of them. In fact, I read that in 2015, a survey of what Americans believe about Jesus discovered that nearly nine in 10 people believe that Jesus was a real historical person, the majority of people. The survey also revealed that the younger you are, the less likely you were to believe that Jesus was God, that Jesus was sinless, that Jesus was the only way to heaven. 
And yet, the same survey discovered that 6 in 10 reported they have made a commitment to Jesus. A majority of people say they know Jesus, yet most of them don't know who he actually is or what he actually taught about himself. Perhaps proclaiming Jesus is no longer offensive because the Jesus being preached is no longer the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the Gospel of Mark is both incredibly captivating and yet quite offensive. There was no one who ever encountered Jesus, who ever met him and saw him and just kind of went, eh. They always had some response. And so this morning's text in chapter 3 beginning in verse 7, this portion of the gospel is really a summary of all the different kinds of responses that people had to Jesus. Responses from the crowds and responses from this core group that he put together and responses from the critics. See, some wanted to just touch Jesus and some wanted to walk with Jesus and then there was a contingent of people who wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus has his own response for each of them. Some Jesus withdraws from, others Jesus draws close to, and and still others he condemns. But in the end, Jesus reveals to them all what it really means to be in relationship with him. And so if you'd read with me in Mark chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 7 and read to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 3 verse 7 says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he had desired, and they came to him, and he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which is, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, and he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then indeed may plunder his house. 
Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent him and called him, and the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Now with every reported healing of disease or casting out of a demon, we see the popularity of Jesus growing exponentially. People are coming from all around the region of Galilee and are swarming to Jesus. And everywhere he stops, crowds are numbering in the thousands. But unlike perhaps some pastors today, Jesus is not gathering attendees. He's not concerned with the numbers He is making disciples. In fact, we see he usually does everything he can to stop the news from spreading, offering, ordering those he heals or those who he casts out demons from or the demons themselves to say nothing, to tell no one. But despite his best efforts, the crowds continue to grow, making it a bit harder for him to complete his mission. And more than once, Jesus goes against every church growth strategy designed by man and he withdraws from the crowds. He goes away from the noise, from the popularity. And as we see here, when he does, the crowds still follow him. They're unrelenting. And as they do, Jesus in this instant asked his disciples to prepare a boat for the purpose of, shall we say, social distancing. He doesn't want to be crushed. It's noteworthy, just as an aside, that though Jesus was the divine Son of God, he made use of very practical precautions. Jesus revealed what it meant to walk by a heavenly faith, and at the same time, he still exercised very earthly wisdom. There's much for us to learn there. But the crowds who followed him, they wanted Jesus to largely fix their earthly problems. The crowds want to touch Jesus, to get close enough to be healed by Jesus, that they might have their bodies, their diseases, whatever conditions they had restored and fixed. Interestingly enough, Jesus at different times in the gospel warned people about seeking him for help in this world only, for bread that fills the stomach but not the soul. In the Gospel of John, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people using five loaves and a couple of fish. And afterwards, he withdraws from the crowd again, sends his disciples across the sea, and he eventually meets them, and the crowd hunts him down. The same crowd he fed follows him. And this is what Jesus says in John 6. Verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. See, the crowds recognize Jesus for what they think he can do, not for who he truly is. This is the majority of people. See, at this point, the demons are the only ones who actually acknowledge the true identity of Jesus. The disciples haven't even said the correct identity yet. The crowds haven't a clue who Jesus is. They view Jesus as a means to an end, a tool to get what they most desire in life. The crowds, the majority of people, then and today, They will often come to Jesus for relief, but not redemption. Even now, as people fear this virus that has overtaken our world and really uh, brought a lot of fear into our lives, many cry out to Jesus for safety, but not yet for salvation. And strangely, once they get close enough, perhaps, to touch Jesus, close enough to Jesus to obtain what they want, what we see is that often they will walk away after being relieved. They'll believe me. Well, it's happened before. In another gospel, the gospel of Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals 10 lepers. And these men who uh, had a permanent condition, ostracized from society, were really had very little hope in life for so many things. Jesus heals them miraculously, and they are restored completely. And yet, the ten walk away, and only one returns. After going to the priest, as Jesus instructed, only one returns to praise God for what he had done. Nine wanted nothing more to do with Jesus. See, the crowds love Jesus the giver. They love Jesus the provider, the reliever, Jesus the healer. But there are very few who actually come to Jesus as Savior. The crowds want Jesus as long as he gives them what they want and think that they need most. But Jesus has so much more for them. That's the first group of people that Jesus engages with. And you'll see the crowds throughout the Gospels. But they also have this core group of people that Jesus begins to gather. See, he withdraws even further from the crowds onto a mountain. And uh, from among the crowds, he calls those who he desires by name to come to him. And as they gather, he identifies this core group as the 12 apostles, these 12 messengers, these 12 sent ones that Jesus will have a special appointment for. And it's very clear in the text what they are appointed for. One thing we kind of dismiss is the first thing he says, they were appointed to be with him. They were chosen to spend intimate time with Jesus, living with Him, learning from Him, unlike anyone else would. Where Jesus would go, they would go. Where Jesus would stay, they would stay. 
Essentially, these men were called and invited and they, and they delightfully did this. They reoriented their entire lives, their entire vocations, everything about who they were around Jesus and His mission. But they were also appointed to preach. They had been invited onto Jesus' mission and they were charged with a particular task, an important task of speaking His message. His message of repent and be healed. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent the kingdoms at hand. That was what they were called to tell the world, tell everyone they interacted with. Every other service they might render, though important, not primary. Everything was secondary to preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And the third thing they were appointed to do was to expel demons And these men had been recruited into a spiritual war. They were created as a platoon, if you will, to go into battle. And they were to wage war against evil. Whether they were actually demons that they would cast out, and they certainly would, it also could have been fighting the doctrine of demons that Paul says. The false teachings that would come up. They were to oppose evil in every form. These were the primary lieutenants and, and, and privates and, and war guys that Jesus chose. And these 12 set the pattern for all future disciples of what we would be called to do. He saves some out of the world and then He sends them back into the world. As we often say, they are restored to restore. They don't just restore and and experience community one another. They are a team of missionaries. They are ambassadors. They are warriors. Now this group is unique as you can see. It's a diverse group. They're made of fishermen and tax collectors and and intellectuals and charismatics and political activists. There's a beautiful diversity to this group and only Jesus could bring together these very different, even opposite men from different backgrounds, different temperaments and make them into one family. They were not drawn together by affinity. They didn't necessarily love the same things, but they had a shared affection and loyalty to Jesus. I love that that our church is so diverse and so different. We like different things. We are different people, and yet we have such a, a wonderful love for the Lord and an affection for one another, even in all those differences. And that's how Jesus first built His church, this magnifies what Jesus is able to do with His church. The church is constructed by God through real people. Like there's real names. I love that the text doesn't just say, oh, He got a bunch of guys together. There are real historical men and real historical women in the church But I find it interesting as you see all these men, first of all, none of them came from among what we would consider qualified. And with few exceptions, we actually know very little about the ministries of most of these men. There aren't large tales written about them. A few of them we certainly have information about. We have some of the letters that they've written, but most of them, apart from a few stories historically, are largely obscure. 
They were not devoted themselves. They weren't devoted to building a legacy for themselves. They were devoted to following the Lord. I appreciate the German reformer Nicholas Zinzendorf. I'm sure you've heard this phrase before, but he said that we should preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And that is what these core disciples were committed to. They preached the gospel, they died, and were forgotten. But these men dropped everything to follow Jesus, to be part of this divine entourage. But, even saying that, it's a great contrast with the crowds, but even among the core, there are some bad apples. Not all of them proved to truly love Jesus. Even some of the core was following Jesus with a divided heart, if you will. His chosen team had its problems, and these were not oversights by the Lord. One of the men who Jesus called to himself by name was Judas, the man who would become possessed by Satan and betray Jesus. It should sober us to know that not all who follow Jesus, not even all who preach Jesus, not even all who do the works for in the name of Jesus truly love Jesus. But regardless, we see that the Lord uses all evil to accomplish His purposes. Now while there is likely a Judas or two even amongst our core, I would argue that the rest of the core isn't clean, the rest of the core isn't perfect. In fact, it's full of a lot of failure. It should comfort us to know that Jesus actually plans for our failures. The failures of Peter and and all these other men didn't surprise Jesus. He loves them. He knows them intimately. See, these others didn't betray Him like Judas may have, but the rest of the core group would either deny Him, abandon Him, Some would even doubt him even after the resurrection. You see, followers of Jesus are not perfect. That they don't always do what he wants. And yet, praise God that Jesus is the one who makes us into disciples and we don't make ourselves. Now, you have the crowds and you have this core and then you have a very large group made up of different kinds of critics the opponents of Jesus that you see come up as the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the lawyers and the Herodians at different times. This group of critics watch as Jesus is working and they are not captivated by Him. They don't want to be close to Him. They actually, as they see Jesus heal and see Jesus cast out demons, they feel threatened by Him. Threatened by perhaps his authority, his power, his position, his popularity, who knows. But they certainly don't like him. And so they viciously attack him. Even as he heals people. Even as he casts out demons. And they accuse him viciously. They don't admire Jesus. They don't want to follow Jesus. They hate Jesus. They want to see Jesus himself destroyed because they declare he's the devil himself. Essentially, by 
declaring Jesus to be Satan incarnate, think about what they're doing. These are largely religious authorities. And so in many ways, they, they do not accept who Jesus claims to be. They do not believe He is the Son of God. They do not believe He is the Messiah. They just believe He's some spiritual teacher. And so what they're doing is they're flexing their spiritual religious muscles and they are making a very authoritative spiritual claim. They're saying, we're the ones who call the shots. We're the ones who discern what is spiritual and not spiritual, what is of God and not of God. In an attempt to speak for God, they are actually speaking against God Himself. They have a spiritual pride. This reveals the, the true heart of a critic. Someone who professes to be the judge of all things. Able to discern and, and have a superior perspective of all others. They judge all things ultimately and they even, in the end, judge God. What God should do, what God can do, what God will do. And they make great declarations. This is a bold declaration. This is not a small thing. And so Jesus interacts with them and he engages with them and he exposes first the foolishness of their, of their claim. It's totally illogical. He says, look, how, how can Satan cast out Satan? He explains that no kingdom, no house, no, no nation is ever going to last. I mean, if Satan is in a civil war with himself, well, the kingdom's doomed. It's a foolish thing to say. And then he proceeds to give a parable revealing that what is really happening is that he, the great power, is binding up Satan and he is warring against his realm and his rule. You may recall when Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, verse, or chapter 16, famously that the gates of hell would not stand against him building his church. That is not a statement of defense. That is a statement of attack. Jesus is advancing on the kingdom of darkness and he is on the offensive and these men have a front row seat to see the kingdom of God being restored and they're blind to it because they're full of pride. They think they know better. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says one of the most troubling things in scripture and granted one of the maybe perhaps most confusing things in scripture but he rebukes their foolishness and then he warns them. He warns these men about judging what has just taken place, the casting out of these demons. And shockingly, he declares this in chapter 3, verse 28. He says, look, all the sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Blasphemy is generally understood as just a very defiant irreverence. But more specifically, it, as we talk about the Old Testament and what these Jewish leaders would understand it to be and what they were saying, it's, it's typically an offensive act or word against God or something sacred. So things like false worship is blasphemous. False teaching is blasphemous. And the Old Testament law actually considered blaspheming God's name a capital offense and the penalty was stoning. This won't be the 
uh, first time, certainly Jesus is talking about their blasphemy, but they will uh, accuse Jesus of being blasphemous at different times. They will even pick up stones to stone him. Blasphemy was not a small thing. And so Jesus talks about blasphemy here. The Son of God talks about blasphemy here. And he says that they have committed like the varsity level blasphemy. He calls it an eternal sin in its nature. Now, I want us all to to think, at least pause for a moment, and I want to assure you that anyone who is repentant, no matter how shameful your sin may be, there is no reason to despair and there is every reason to hope in Christ. Murder is forgivable. Adultery is forgivable. As we see with the Apostle Peter, denial of Christ is forgivable. Jesus says, however, that there is a sin in this case, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that is not forgivable. And it's probably important to figure out what that is. The sin against the Holy Spirit in this context seems to have something to do with attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. And we know that the Pharisees, these guys who are interacting, right, they had the law and the prophets, they had the Old Testament which is a witness to to the story and the promises and the prophecies of God. They had the Holy Spirit, if we will, stirring their hearts. They had the Son of God Himself standing right in front of them. And they saw with their own eyes the miracles that He did. And never before in history, and perhaps never again in that sense, was there so much exposure and witness given to a people. If anyone was going to recognize who Jesus was, you would think it was the Pharisees. And yet they were offered every opportunity and they rejected him every time. I'm not convinced the sin can be committed by accident, if it could even be committed at all. But as an eternal sin, I'm inclined to believe that when we speak about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a person's final and full rejection of God's grace. These men had set their course. There was no forgiveness to be expected in this life, and there was no second chance in the next. While not everyone who rejects Jesus is going to present as a critic like this. Not everyone who rejects Jesus is going to call Jesus Satan. I would argue that the light of Jesus, not his wrath, the light of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the imitation of forgiveness from Jesus, while that enlightens and captivates many, it also, that same light, hardens many. I believe it was Spurgeon who said, the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. And that is a mystery that the Lord only knows how it works. So you got these three groups of people, right? You got these crowds, which is the majority of people. You have this small core, which in itself has its problems. And then you have the critics. 
And as these three different like people, these three different responses to Jesus come about, we go, how is this all connected? And so Jesus, I think at the end of chapter three here, kind of brings it all together as he starts to talk about family, relationship with him, intimacy with him, unity with him. And so if you look where we started, Mark 3 kind of has this sandwich. All the stuff we, we, we went through has a sandwich of his interactions with his actual earthly family. And if you look in verse 20, uh, it says he, he went home and the crowd gathered again and they couldn't eat and his family heard it. They went to seize him and they're like, he is out of his mind. So his family's like, dude, he's gone nuts. And then again in verse 31, we see that his mom and his brothers come again and they're standing outside and they send someone in to call him because they can't even get into where Jesus is at. It says the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Okay, so Jesus has a family. It's not just Mary. More than likely, Joseph, his father, has died. Uh, he's not mentioned. They don't talk about him. So you have Mary. But the Bible records that Jesus had brothers and sisters. He was the firstborn, immaculately conceived uh, through the Holy Spirit with Mary and so, but Joseph and Mary had other children. So Jesus had what we consider half-brothers and sisters, and they're mentioned in Scripture, not by name, but the fact that they exist. And prior to his resurrection, none of them believed that he was the Messiah. None of them believed he was who was promised. They didn't believe he was demon-possessed necessarily, but they did think seriously that he was a little bit of a loon. They thought he had gone a little nuts, that he was out of his mind. And so his family comes looking for him, and the crowd is so thick, they are forced to stand outside and send a messenger in because Jesus is sitting with, more than likely, his disciples. And so a messenger arrives, informs Jesus about his family, and his response to his earthly family about what it means to be family is revealing in verse 33 the last few verses Jesus responds to the messenger and he says who are my mother and my brothers and looking about at those who sat around him he said here are my mother and my brothers whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother. And he has all three. You see, Jesus seems to reveal here that there is a deeper kinship than his earthly family. It's a relationship that has ties that are more satisfying. It even, I would argue, has ties that are more demanding. Jesus is, is building, if you will, a new family a family that's called out from among the crowds, that's called out even from among the core, because not all the core is going to prove to be family. A family that's called out even from the critics, and I say that because there will be a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who comes to believe. 
And according to Jesus, what most characterizes being family with Jesus is not just being close to Him, not just following Him, not just talking about Him, not even just being related to Him, but actually doing the will of God. Obedience. What characterizes being family with Jesus is obedience to the will of God. You see, every one of these groups probably obey or appear to obey for different reasons. The crowds will obey if Jesus will heal what's broken. They'll do whatever he has to say. The 10 lepers were evidence of that. Go do this, clean, whatever. And they did it and they were clean. They'll, oh, if that means I will be fixed, I'll do whatever you say. And then they walk away and have nothing to do with them. The core will obey if it leads them to anywhere but the cross. Even Peter was like, Jesus, uh, this idea of the cross, of crucifixion, uh, that, is, that is messed up. And Jesus had to rebuke him for that. Because the core will follow Jesus as long as he doesn't lead them into places that are uncomfortable. Well, follow the will of God and obey as long as you lead me to a place where I'm not going to like it, where it might hurt, I might lose something. And the critics, the critics will leave and obey as long as Jesus says and does what they prefer. As long as he's a tame Messiah, a controlled God. The critics are those with so much spiritual pride, as long as God does what they want Him to do, then they will obey. But see, those whom Jesus calls family, those who Jesus calls family, are those who embrace the will of God regardless. Those who embrace the will of God, even if it means they remain in their suffering. Those who embrace the will of God, even if it means they have to reorient their lives and walk into places of great discomfort and pain and loss. Even if it means having to revise your preferences or everything you thought about what God would do or not do. Even if it means that you'll be rejected by the ones you love most. Jesus says, those who are family. You see, Jesus is our example of what this looks like. He went to the cross. You see, every part of Jesus' life on earth was devoted to doing the will of God from the incarnation to the crucifixion. Even which required sacrifice. If you remember on the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he actually had prayed or been praying to his father, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup of crucifixion away. But then he says, but not as I want, but as you will. He said, that is how you have family with Jesus. We all have wants, we all have desires, we all have things that we would love and expect and hope for, but we hold them with open hands because we know that the will of God is what is supreme. Those whom Jesus calls family are those who devote themselves to the will of God more than they are devoted to anything else. You see, everyone talks about loving Jesus. Everyone talks about admiring Jesus. Everyone thinks they've committed to Jesus until he says things like he said in Luke 
14.26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Everyone loves Jesus until he shows you the cost of discipleship. He wants to be family and he doesn't expect us to hate our family as much as what do we love most and in comparison to him, everything else almost looks like hatred. Everyone loves Jesus until he says that you must love him more than everyone and everything else in your own life. But only Jesus can call you to this kind of radical obedience because Jesus is God and he gave everything he had for us. So he knows what it means to lose and to suffer. So as we close, I wanna encourage you, some of you listening this morning are likely part of the crowds. You've been following Jesus around for a long time admiring perhaps Jesus' teaching, perhaps even reaching out to Jesus when you need Him for relief. But soon you forget. Jesus wants to heal more than your body. Jesus wants to do more than just fix your life on earth. He wants to redeem your soul. He wants to give you more than just, uh, you know, uh, to deal or fix your thirst in this earthly life. He talks about putting a spring in you that, that bursts forth with eternal life. I encourage you, if you're in the crowds, to stop worrying about your life. Stop fearing. Repent and come to Jesus. And then some of you listening this morning, perhaps you're part of the core group. Perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time. You were called by Jesus maybe some time ago. But since then, perhaps your affection has waned, though you still go through the motions. You know that you don't love Jesus as much as you once did. You don't follow him as closely as you once had. Perhaps you've doubted Jesus. Perhaps you've dismissed Jesus. Perhaps you've even denied Jesus. I want to encourage you that Jesus is not surprised. That he's planned for your failure. And he invites you to return. So stop despairing. And stop delaying. Repent and come to Jesus. And for the last group... I know that some of you listening this morning may not call yourself this, but maybe you have been a critic. Perhaps you've been those who have despised and judged Jesus as you speak with a spiritual authority in the name of Jesus. You're the kind of person that neither God nor His people ever seem to do what's right in your eyes. Everyone's got it wrong but you. You have it all figured out. And what you prefer and what you think and what you feel and what God is saying to you is right. You're perhaps the last person anyone, including yourself, thinks needs saving. I would encourage you to stop fighting, to stop pretending, and also repent 
and come to Jesus. To all of us, Jesus is many things, or I should say, can be many things. But unless you believe what he actually teaches about himself, he can't be a good moral teacher. To finish C.S. Lewis's quote, he says simply this, you must make your choice. You must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is Savior and he is Lord. My prayer is that you will come to him, receive forgiveness, and you will hope in him beyond the earthly life that we are now living, which is being exposed for what it is, broken, weak, and coming to an end. Repent and come to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you have done through your Son. King Jesus, we thank you for coming. We thank you for calling. And we thank you for comforting those who you've called. Lord, many of us um, listening are, are part of the crowd's We've kept an arm's length to Jesus and we come close to him just enough to get a little relief and then we never come close to him again. Lord, I pray that you will compel us to do more than just use Jesus as a tool and a means to our own ends. And Lord, even if we call ourselves Christians, even if we find ourselves as part of the core, we, Father, will have our hearts exposed to see whether we truly are devoted to you or whether we're just devoted to the ritual, going through the motions, and when things get hard, we walk away. Help us to be a faithful people, Lord. And for the critics among us, the spiritually prideful among us, who believe they can declare what what God should do and not do and Jesus should do and not do and say or whatever. Lord, would you help us to be humble and surrender? Would you soften the heart of those critics? And would you transform them into some of the most powerful preachers for your word? We thank you for all that you are doing in the midst of this darkness and chaos. Help us to set our minds on the things above so they don't get set on the things below. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.